The first passage that we'll be looking at in this series comes from Peter's first letter, chapter 3. Peter's first letter, chapter 3. The passage that uh, was in question ran from verse 18 to 22, the end of this chapter, but I'd like to uh, begin reading at verse 8, 1 Peter 3, verse 8, and read to the end of the chapter. Hear then the word of God through the apostle Peter. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love See good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who reviled your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. And the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, as background for that, would you turn to the book of Genesis? As Noah is mentioned by Peter, let's turn back to the story of Noah, beginning at Genesis chapter 6. This is, of course, very early in the earth's history and early in the history of man. And it's given us to know that now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them 
that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who are of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. And the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside a doubt with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I... Even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives, with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you... Take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did. According to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. 
You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, the male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded them. And the Lord closed it behind him. Amen. May God add his blessing to our reading and understanding of these things. Given the pristine holiness of the living and true God who's revealed for us in the scriptures. And given, on the other hand, the natural blindness and twistedness of the fallen sinful men who receive these scriptures, given these two facts, we have abundant reason to thank God that we have any understanding of the Bible, his word, at all. One might reasonably wonder how a holy God and sinful men could ever find common ground to communicate. But the Bible's main points, actually, are profoundly simple. They're comprehended in that catechism question as to what the scriptures principally teach. And some of you know the answer to this. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So what the Bible principally teaches us is right theology and right ethics. 
And as we've seen, and as we see every time we open the Bible and flip through it, God uses the tools of history and law and song lyrics and poetry and prophecy and sermons and letters and apocalyptic, all these literary genres to drive those two main points home, who God is and who we are. It's actually reported that uh, some people who've taken up the Bible with a name to read it find the material boring. Some find it hard to follow. To some who open up the Bible, it seems to them little more than antiquated gibberish. They can make heads, neither heads nor tails of it. But let me be clear when I tell you that in every one of those cases, the fault lies not with the transmitter, but with the receiver. Not with him who speaks, but with him who hears or fails to hear. For those of us who make an earnest effort, yearning with all of our hearts to know the God who is revealed in this scripture, and employ all the available means of grace, the Bible's meaning becomes increasingly both clear and compelling. And by it, lost and perishing sinners are converted, and lives and families and nations are transformed to the glory of God. Today, as I said, we're beginning a summer preaching series on some of those Bible passages that you've suggested, either because they especially interest you, or especially stump you, or especially trouble you. One of the passages suggested appears in the context of today's New Testament reading. Specifically, it's 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. And as I looked at it, I realized there's actually plenty of grist uh, grist here for the mill of at least two explanatory sermons. Today we'll consider in particular verses 18 through 20, and next week, God willing, verses 21 and 22. Let's have another look at this matter of the preaching of Christ to the spirits in prison. Verses 18 to 20. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, or I would say it is better to say, in whom also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Let's begin our look at this with some basics, like the historical situation in which Peter writes this. 
We've already noticed, beginning in the ninth verse, that Peter's addressing a church that's suffering some degree of opposition, even intimidation, for its steadfast faith in Christ. In fact, much of the letter concerns this matter of Christian suffering. And the very first verse of the letter shows us just how widespread this problem of gospel resistance was at the time. Peter is writing to a church that, according to verse 1 of the first chapter, a church that resides as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are five imperial Roman provinces that, taken all together, comprise most of modern-day Turkey. And some, but by no means all of the Gospels' progress through this expansive region is told for us in the book of Acts, where we find it to be, in Paul's case at least, we find it to be a pretty rough audience, don't we? And what faithful Christians need to know when we're being intimidated or otherwise persecuted for our testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we need to know isn't how we're going to escape that persecution, but how we ought to conduct and carry ourselves in the midst of it. How we ought to behave. And of course... We need plenty of godly encouragement as well. Peter's letter offers both these gracious gifts to those who live as aliens in a world that's at war with the gospel. He offers us guidance, and he offers us encouragement. That's what the letter is about. His guidance to Christians facing intimidation, facing persecution, his guidance is timeless. And it comes down to these two things. Come what may, my persecuted brethren, come what may, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, then you'll invariably, first of all, tell the truth. You'll invariably tell the truth. And secondly, you'll invariably do what's right, whatever the cost. In the face of persecution, that is your twofold testimony as a Christian. That is your testimony in word and deed to the transforming grace and power of the gospel. Verse 17 sets up for us the principle that he begins to apply then in verse 18. For it is better, he says, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And that is the principal thought here. Then he immediately takes us to the very best possible example to make his point. He takes us to the example of the suffering servant, Christ Jesus, our Lord. While being harried and hounded to a shameful death, our Lord Jesus Christ did nothing wrong. He suffered 
and died at the hands of men while doing absolutely nothing wrong. He died, in fact, the Gospels tell us, he died blessing those who cursed him, praying for those who persecuted him. His suffering and death, in fact, was that of the just for the unjust. It was the death of an unblemished lamb for the setting free of careless sinners. Setting us free, not so that we can now live however we jolly well please, but setting us free at last to come to God, that he might, in fact, bring us to God. That's why he died, the death that he did. Well, so far, so good in Peter's line of thinking. The example of Christ's suffering both guides and encourages his people as we face the bullies of our own day. Then we come to those two parallel, aorist, passive participles, midway through verse 18. Thanatothes, which means having been put to death, and zoopoietheis, having been made alive. Now Peter's referring, of course, to Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. The death of Jesus was the death of his flesh at the moment when, according to Luke, as we've recently seen, Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So he was put to death in the flesh, His flesh at that moment died. His spirit did not die. His spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit who filled him beyond measure, his Holy Spirit was received again that moment to his Father in heaven. The body lay in the grave. The spirit remained alive and active. The Spirit was, in fact, and is, in fact, the divine person who is responsible for raising the mortal body of the man Jesus from the dead on the third day. That was the work of his Spirit. Now, it's important here to bear in mind that the English preposition in that appears both before the flesh and the spirit in verse 18. That preposition doesn't appear in the Greek original. In fact, there's no preposition at all. We determine the apostle's meaning instead by the grammatical case of the nouns flesh and spirit, which in both words is the dative case. It carries here, as I see it, the meaning that Christ was put to death with respect to the flesh, but made alive by the instrumentality of the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit. So Peter's just mentioned that 
glorious work of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ raising him from the dead. And he can scarcely think of the work of the Holy Spirit without expanding on the glorious power and extent of that work. Remember who's writing this, Peter. Peter clearly remembers the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ on the day of Pentecost when he and a few other young fishermen who had been with Jesus began turning the world upside down. This Holy Spirit who brooded over the surface of the waters in the beginning of time. This Holy Spirit of Christ who inspired the prophets and apostles along human history's way and who in these last days of history joins with the ransomed bride of Christ to say, Come! Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Peter's excited when he speaks about the Holy Spirit. So Peter has in mind first the suffering of the righteous, that's the context, and along with it, the work of the Holy Spirit who raised the God-man Jesus from the dead. In these last days, the suffering, dying Jesus stood completely alone against the world. And every gospel writer portrays the cross of Christ in just these terms. The Savior alone, surrounded on every side by scoffers and mockers, those bulls and lions and dogs and wild oxen of Psalm 22, all let loose against him to tear him up and destroy him. All of this while his friends and loved ones either fled or stood at a distance watching. All the world took their stand against the one good man, Christ Jesus. So turning that terrible scenario over in his mind, it occurs to Peter that this wasn't the first time in history that one righteous man stood over against the world of lost and perishing sinners. A world of scoffers and mockers. His mind goes back some 25 centuries to Noah, the one lone man of his wicked and perverse generation who found favor in the eyes of God. How did the same eternal spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, how did he operate back in the days of Noah? Here's how. In and by means of his Holy Spirit, Christ himself was preaching the gospel to the disobedient of Noah's generation. By the power of the Spirit of Christ, Noah led a conspicuously, uh, led a life that was conspicuously out of step with his perishing neighbors who scoffed at him. 
In the power of the Spirit of Christ, he preached righteousness to them. From the Spirit of Christ, he received direction to build an ark. By the power of the long-suffering Spirit of Christ, he built that ark over the course of 120 years of grace. To Noah's generation then, the Spirit of Christ, who was much later to raise him from the dead, this same Spirit for 120 years was preaching the free offer of the gospel. The Spirit of Christ in Noah's generation was preaching, repent and live. Enter into your only hope of deliverance. Repent and live. There's room in the ark for you. That was the Spirit of Christ preaching to that generation. So did any of that generation actually obey the preaching of Christ proceeding from the lips of Noah? Did they? Obedience would have been very easily measured it, wouldn't it? by their entrance into the ark, which was their only hope of salvation from the deluge that destroyed every living thing on earth. If they repented and believed the word of Christ in the mouth of Noah, they would have entered the ark. Noah's preaching the word of Christ by the Spirit of Christ. And the storm clouds are beginning to gather. And he preaches to them the word of Christ. The wind is picking up and he's still preaching to them the word of Christ. Can you hear the thunder beginning to rumble in the distance? Still Noah builds and still he preaches the word of Christ. This gospel of Christ offers the sinner no middle ground. There is no gray area. You either believe and you enter the ark or you disbelieve. You remain outside and you perish. It's in that sense that those disobedient spirits, those disobedient people to whom Christ preached in the days of Noah are now in prison. That is, those people who died apart from faith in the days of Noah are now in hell, imprisoned along with Satan and his demons. In their day, their brief day of opportunity. They mocked Noah. They scoffed at him. They scoffed at his preaching. They scoffed at his great building project. They heard the Spirit of Christ speaking to them on the lips of Noah. But they entered not into the ark provided. And they perished. Now, let's think about this. 
What do you suppose was the Earth's population by Noah's generation, which was the tenth generation from Adam? In an era of human history, when a man's reproductive, reproductive lifespan wasn't measured in years, but in centuries. I suspect the Earth's population might well have been in the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions, at this point. Now, how many of those people heard the word of Christ and actually believed it and entered the ark? Precisely one extended family of eight persons. Eight people. Eight souls, as Peter actually puts it in the original. Eight souls. Four men and their wives. These heard the preaching of the Spirit of Christ in their generation, and they believed and they were saved. Eight souls. So when you as a Christian suffer alone, remember that you're actually in very, very good company. I have one final question for you. How much of all of this that we've been covering, how much of all this do you suppose that Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives actually understood as for 120 years they suffered the scoffing and mockery of all those to whom they bore testimony. And then, after 120 years of grace and no rain, then the rain came and the floodgates of the earth were opened, and then they suffered an additional year shut up together in the ark. How much of these things, in terms of the future, did they understand? They certainly bore the brunt of the hardship, but did they understand where all this was leading? Was it given to those eight souls aboard the ark, was it given to them to know that somewhere out there, beyond the watery end of the world as they knew it, the gracious covenant purposes of God would continue. It's very easy to simply lose yourself in the daily routine of life. The daily routines of feeding the animals, watering the animals, mucking out their stalls, day after day, week after week, month after month, for a solid year adrift on the surface of the sea. Did they understand that the same Spirit of Christ who preached the gospel to them and through them who'd preserved their lives, who'd sustained them in their labors and settled them to start the world anew. Was it given them to understand that this same spirit in time would raise the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead? 
course not. Because they lived by faith. They lived by faith. They only knew what they knew. They only knew what was given them to know. And this is a very important point for us to understand and bear in mind in our own generation. Because just like Noah, we must be content living by faith in the revelation God's given us. He's given us certain things to know. Our privileges, poised as we are here in the first half of the 21st century, our privileges far outweigh the privileges given to Noah. Let our obedience to the word and spirit of Christ in our day be proportionate to the much greater light that's available to us. For of Noah and of so many more like him down through the ages, Peter writes in his first chapter of this letter, Peter writes, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. You they were serving in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. The better our light of revelation, the more confident let our walk be by the Spirit of Christ who has in these last days raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. Amen.